At Antiquum Farm, like not only do we not ever cut corners, but we will manufacture additional corners just for the joy of cornering. From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season four of the Wine Crush podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here is your host, Heidi Moore. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of Wine Crush. We are here in beautiful downtown McMinnville in our brand new studio. I have two colorful gentlemen sitting across the table from me from Antiquum down south, which is a little bit outside of Willamette Valley, and to say they're colorful is the least. So welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us, coming all the way up here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So I really don't know where to start with you. I've heard both of your stories. I know we're going to start with Steven first because his story starts before you. He's a little bit older than you. So we're going to, we we're going to start we, yeah. age before beauty. So let's start with your story. I want you to tell me all about it right from the beginning again and don't leave out a bunch of the details because that's where the fun and color is. Oh, okay. From the very, very beginning? Very, very beginning. The, okay. I think right. like there, Hollywood beginning, I think a, is where we started. with a light. No, so my wife, Nikki, and I met down in Los Angeles back in the mid to late 80s, or 80s, 90s, sorry. And I was working as a garden designer. She was one of my clients. So, and pretty much immediately when we met, literally the night we met, we kind of said, hey, you want to get out of L.A. and go get married and have babies in Oregon. And two weeks later, we were up in Oregon. I brought her up to visit my folks. I had a fresh tattoo that said Nikki across my shoulder. Wow, that uh, is commitment right from the beginning. Right off the bat. And we saw this piece of land and it just, there was just something about it. It just gripped us. And the next thing you know, it was ours. And we knew nothing about this. We still don't know anything uh, about growing wine, but there was just something about it. I've always loved agriculture. I've always loved having my hands in the dirt. And I just saw it as, as the way that we really wanted to raise our children. And I see agriculture as, as, as having the possibility of, of kind of showing some of the very best attributes of, of humanity, you know, kindness, caring, humility, ideally, and generosity. And, and I see growing wine as the best place for agriculture to be a creative expression, to become art. Because unfortunately, we don't poke and prod and sniff and swirl broccoli in the way that we do wine. There's the, it is this product that, that gets put through a lot of analysis in, in a lot of different ways. And it just felt to me like wine presented the best opportunity for, for farming to become art. And so that's kind of what we've, we've tried to work toward over the last, gosh, what's it, almost 25 years. And a lot of that has, has meant sort of shucking off much of the way that, that I see viticulture being practiced all over the world. So you want me to expand on that? Yeah, <laughs> I think we can go into it a little bit yeah. further once we actually yeah, yeah. start talking about the farm, because yeah. that is, to me, your story is that farm and how you are running that farm. So we're going to talk to Andrew, get his side of the story and figure out how you two came together to work together 
And then we'll circle back into the farm because to me, that is where there's so much magic being done and it leads to really, I don't even know how to explain the creativity and the love for the land, the love for your family, how it's all coming together. And I just, I don't know. It just, it's, it's really unique and amazing. So Andrew, the floor is yours. Where did you come into all of this wine stuff? So I, I grew up learning about wine and understanding wine through, through restaurants. So worked for uh, a decade off and off, off and on in the restaurant industry and eventually became burnt out on that part of it and got more into wanting to learn more about wine production. And when I was in Seattle, running a couple of restaurants there and doing some small, small consulting, helping people build wine lists. There's also an enormous amount of wine producers in the Seattle metropolitan area. And so I would go volunteer for them and bottle and work harvest and just when I could on, on off days. And it just kept driving more and more and more until eventually I wanted to try and see what this harvest thing that you end up doing as a, as a young seller worker when you want to see what it's like is you just go try to find a job and somewhere around the world and work and work and work and clean and clean and clean. And I thought that sounds like repetitive work and physical and things that I enjoyed that I really wasn't getting to do in, in the restaurant world in the same way. So I came down here in 2011 into the Willamette Valley and worked the first harvest at Shea Wine Cellars. And that year, a guy named Drew Voigt was the winemaker there. And Drew had his own project, which continues today. And Stephen was selling Drew Pinot Noir from Antiquum Farm. And so Stephen shows up in 2011, one of the just the shittiest vintages, challenging, really cold, really wet, really hard for so many people. And so we had been dealing with processing fruit that wasn't of always of the highest quality and making those selections to make the best wine possible and, and throwing things away. And Stephen, <laughs> Stephen showed up and he dropped off the fruit. And as he was leaving, he was like, I just like, I'm really sorry, guys. Like, it's not up. The vintage just kind of got away from me. The challenges with the weather. And we were like, it's like, don't worry about it. It's fine. And uh, a few hours later, when we started processing the Pinot Noir that he dropped off, we just put it on the line and none of it was coming off. We weren't throwing anything out. We were cutting in the middle of clusters. We didn't see any problems with anything. And the fact that he was apologizing for something that was quite literally perfect because it didn't meet his standard was that moment of me going, oh, that's different. Like some, that's someone who's put their life into something and isn't just trying to turn a buck. Like that guy really, really cares, really, really cares. And years later, in 2018, coming back to work with him on Antiquum Farm to translate his vision into every single bottle that we make has been the, the joy and incredible experience of my life doing this. Wow. And we still haven't turned a buck to this day. Not a dollar. Yeah, there's <laughs> n we're, we're making no profits except emotional. There's some emotional profits and the joy and the pleasure of working with each other and hopefully you know, part of my job is to make sure that Antiquum Farm becomes the legacy of his family. And I do that from the winemaking side. And it's it's all holding together what he put forth and, and what Nikki has supported and what his kids have done. And I'm just the interpreter of that. That is beautiful. Nice work. <laughs> kind of gave me a little bit of the goosebumps over here. So, you know, Kudos. I mean, it. not only did you make a commitment to your wife within two weeks and it's still going 25 years later, but now you picked up this guy and the two of you are almost like this 
odd couple match made in heaven kind of thing, it sounds like, to where you really have this great relationship that is you being able to see Stephen's vision and really being able to translate your vision back to somebody for them to take a hold of it and move forward with it with you is really rare. Yeah, I mean... I feel incredibly lucky to have crossed paths with Andrew. I think, you know, the people that know Andrew know that he's incredibly smart and talented. I, I, the thing that I don't know that a lot of people know about him and what is so important to making wines for Antiquum Farm is intuition because our farming has nothing to do with technical book learning. You know, there's, there's <laughs> none of that in there. I mean, this is all stuff that we literally have figured out on our own and just made up along the way and dealing with that and the different set of circumstances that come out of the other side require a level of faith and intuition on the winemaking end that I think is incredibly hard to find. And Andrew's level of, of intuition and just gut feel of with what is right for the fruit. And, and, and the other, you know, what I think a lot of winemakers would see as, as a frustrating set of circumstances we see as completely awesome is that things change every vintage here in quite a spectacular fashion. And, and he is completely willing to just embrace that and celebrate it. And, and that is like a huge part of our deal. And so it's, it's just something that I, that I really treasure. It was impressive when I was out there because you could see the friendship and the camaraderie and the, the partnership the two of you had, because we started with Andrew in the tasting room. We talked for a little bit. I was out there with another, actually two other gals um, that were in the farming industry. And then you came, you know, waltzing in a little while later with your muddy boots and your overalls. And I mean, dressed to the hilt as a farmer. That was to me was standard <laughs> farmer attire. And I loved it. I'm like, this guy's going to be real. I, there's being a farm person. I appreciate that because you weren't putting on a facade and you weren't putting on a front. You were literally embracing what you do in and out of the tasting room, which is usually fairly prim and proper in there. But I think you threw your boots off outside the door and walked in with your bare feet and or socks or whatever it was, and off we went. Before we go any further, though, your Instagram handles are probably the most entertaining I've ever seen <laughs> as far as how you guys describe yourself. And so... Andrew, you're first because yours was not near as entertaining as Steven's. No, it's it's not. What I don't even know what it says right now. I've 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 been off of Instagram for not even paying attention for a while. I think it says something about free free range winemaker. I don't know exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. Free range winemaker. Yeah, I've I've, ro I've rotated between uh, that and when we've gone and done events around the country. I think I annoy our trade organizations by asking them to put all sorts of different things on my name tag. And the most recent one, which now seems a long time ago, was assistant to the regional winemaker. And they, they always write me back and they're like, can you stop? Can you just put Nor And I was like, no, that's that's what we're doing today. So we always try to keep it, try to keep it light and keep it entertaining and culturally relevant. Perfect. Yeah, I, I 
can't remember what I have on mine right now. I think it's something about like life coaching pigs or something. But And boot model. Boot model, yeah. <laughs> definitely uh, heavy on the boot model contract. I mean, we have to turn a profit on the farm some way. And, and that boot modeling contract is is kicking in. Yeah, Carhartt, if you want to sponsor us, who else? Who else? What other sponsorships are we looking Rainier for? Rainier Beer. Rainier Beer, that'd be oh, right. That, that one would be <laughs> epic because it does take good beer to make great wine. Yeah, right. Yes. I don't know if Rainier is actually technically in that, you know, <laughs> that it's column. Great, it's Sorry, great Rainier. For, it's great for its purpose. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There yes. you go. Yeah. It's good farm beer. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, one of the aspects about the farm that that is, you know, I was I just thinking about this today is, you know, the, the humor that I get from the place on a daily basis is something that, you know, that there, there are many other things I probably could have done with my life that where I, I would have made a better living. But one of the principles that informs what we do every day is just based on joy and happiness and sort of trying to, to live and work with a sense of wonder and humor. Both m- my wife and I just a sense of humor is something we both really treasure, you know, and, and we like in each other is, is, is being able to laugh. And the farm just cracks me up on, on a daily basis. The, the sheep, the geese in particular, the pigs, like they're all just funny, you know, and, and so walking out every single day and have something happen that just makes you belly laugh. I mean, I, I, I realize maybe that sounds kind of cheesy and trivial, but it's, but it's like, it is something that I, I value a lot in, in my work. You are living what most people strive for, which is to find joy and happiness and a purpose with their daily life, which not everybody can say that. And so for the, you to be able to say that and then find the humor piece into it and then be able to, you know, filter the friendship piece into it and the family piece of it you really have hit the jackpot. You're hitting all the, all the boxes, checking all the boxes as far as really, can you say life is perfect? No, but you know, I don't know if you're that far from it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, the days where you, where you slip and fall in the mud three times and you know, where your ram cracks you in the tailbone, (laughs) you know, those, those days happen as well. But this really is, I mean, it's, it's not a model that is even vaguely fiscally responsible, it's not efficient, but it, I mean, sometimes we kind of, instead of calling it grazing-based viticulture, we, we say it's joy-based agriculture. And, and that really is part of the foundation behind it. And, and, and the idea that, that happy people and happy animals make happy products, happy wines. That's kind of how I see it. You truly could be your own commercial. You know, forget California and their happy cows. You got, you got the whole herd. <laughs> one, of, one of everything. It's like a Noah's Ark over there. <laughs> But I guess if we pivot to the farm, because we've kind of, you know, kind of skirted around the entire outside of the farm at this point in time, when you moved up here 25 years ago or whenever it was, was it really truly your vision to be running what you are now? Because as far as like traditionality and how a farm, you know, quote unquote, should run or should look like, you guys are the polar opposite. And for me, it looked like you were basically operating in, you know, prehistoric non-machine times, which is truly what you're doing in many respects. Yeah. No, it was not the vision originally. We didn't know enough to have a vision. So when we were first looking at developing the vineyard, because, because we knew nothing, I was talking to a lot of other growers and winemakers and really trying to kind of wrap my head around this idea of terroir. 
and everyone's talking about this thing and and I'm and I'm asking questions and follow-up questions and follow-ups to the follow-ups and none of the explanations about how we're actually making that happen and why made any sense to me on a practical level all the answers that I were that I was getting when you you know I was asking incredibly naive a very basic questions, you know, how, well, okay, terroir, like, how do you get place in wine? How, how do you make the wines interpret that? What does that mean to you? And you get answers like, well, you know, we just, we make estate wines, the fruit is all sourced from here. Or, okay. But still, how do, how do we get the place to communicate? Or, you know, well, we farm organically. Okay. Well, where are your organic fertilizers coming from? You know, I mean, it's something a lot of people don't think about, you know, aren't willing to think about or don't want to think about is that organic fertilizers, you know, just take the Willamette Valley as a growing region. As an example, those materials aren't from here, let alone they're not from your vineyard. And not only that, but the source points are incredibly limited and they're from all over the country. So we're trucking things across the country in, in the name of sustainability, and we're also using all of the same materials that everyone else is using. So over time, what I kind of started thinking is, you know, there is kind of this aha moment of like, my God, you know, we're, we're all homogenizing our sites to a certain degree. And that was kind of the light bulb that went off in my head. It's like, we have to get rid of all that shit and start farming in a way that is truly self-contained, you know, and, and I looked at biodynamic methods and there was a lot of it that just doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. I'm not saying that organic viticulture or biodynamic viticulture are not really positive steps because they are anything that connects a grower to their place in a more intense and personal way is definitely a positive step. And, and those things obviously are, are better from a sustainability standpoint. But what I didn't really see were farms that were actually truly running in a truly self-sustaining way. And so I, I really wanted to try and find a way for this vineyard to kind of like cycle on itself. The idea being that when it starts cycling off of its own resources, that over time the personality of the site will almost become like a feedback loop where it will build and amplify over time. Its own time. circle of life to a certain extent. Right. And that th those traits and, and, those, and, and what makes the place have a soul or personality will, will compound and amplify over time. So then it just became a matter of t over time of like figuring out, okay, how do we do this? Like, like if you're looking at, at truly sustaining a vineyard off of compost, you're looking at, you know, dozens of tons per acre of, of compost every year to truly sustain it. So how do you, how do you actually make that happen? Because we can't have a Costco sized pile of compost on the farm. So how do you make that happen? The only way I saw it is, is by actually growing the plant material in the vineyard to create that amount of organic matter and then having a way of breaking it down. So the clear answer becomes livestock. And so it's just then a matter of specifically selecting different types of animals that fit into the constraints of a vineyard system and inside of that specific breeds of animals, like fine tuning the system over time, which is something 
that we're still doing to this day. So to generate that amount of, of organic material and capture that amount of carbon, it requires something that's called rotational intensive grazing to keep things actively growing through a longer period of the season. So we break the vineyard into tiny little pieces and rotate the animals really quickly. So we're moving them every three to 21 days so that they can continuously cycle through the vineyard, you know, anywhere from 20 to 25 times a year they're moving through the site. That's pretty crazy. You had two, when I was there, you had two sides. You had the side where the home was, and I know that's where part of the year the sheep, I think, grazed over there, correct? Yeah. And then you also had the the times while they were in the vineyard, which to me is just like sheep eat anything like goats, you know, so how is that sustainability fixed, you know, as far as them not eating the new shoots and not eating the new buds and not eating the fruit. So you've apparently figured that out to where mm-hmm. you know when to have them in there and know when to kick them out basically. Right. Yeah. So they are in the vineyard for the most part year round. The only time we kick them out is when, when the fruit begins picking up sugar because that temptation then becomes pretty overwhelming for them and they want to just eat the fruit as well as we have to pull all of the birds, all of the chickens and geese and everybody else out of the vineyard because they'll actually start jumping up and picking berries. And so outside of the ripening time, they're in there year round. So the sheep, we have retrofitted our trellis system to have offset electrical wires. We've kind of designed our own system where it's adjustable, it slides back and forth and it's movable because the vines are never in the place that they were, you know, two weeks ago. So this whole thing is incredibly labor intensive. There's there's a lot of effort and expense that goes into it, but that's how we're keeping the sheep off of the vines. And so th- then they're able to be in there year round. When I very first started this system, the first thing we did was just have them in there in the winter time. And it's just too short of a window. You know, it's there's high rainfall. You get maybe one rotation through the vineyard and, and there's just not enough of an input there to actually affect anything. But we saw after running this system for three years that we were actually able to completely wean off of fertilizers. So the vineyard... The vineyard began weaning off of fertilizers in 2007 and has has not been fertilized since 2010 at all. And you're not using any machinery in oh, there. Oh no, we have we have machinery. Oh, I didn't <laughs> yeah, think you were using definitely. any machinery. That is no. my bad. Yeah, no. We we have two old tractors at this point on on the site and we, you know, we have a, a sprayer and we do run our, you know, because we're growing grapes in Oregon, so we do run an organic fungus program in, in the vineyard. Outside of that, we're using no, you know, pesticides. Like we, I don't believe in things like insect pests or pathogens at all. I, I don't think that they're actually a thing. There are systems that are out of balance. You know what I mean? So if you have a problem, you know, like I, I'm, I'm amazed, you know, we, for, for mites in, in vineyards, we go through and, and we blast away even with organic materials and we essentially fry every little bug in the vineyard to deal with this one mite that maybe does, you know, sometimes you see people with two to 5% shoot damage and they're blasting the entire vineyard and frying everything. And, and, and then yet you're going out and dropping 40% of the crop. So part of this system is like to ask deeper questions and ask more follow-up questions and to always be incredibly self-critical, which sometimes is a lot of fun. But 
to not just go on autopilot and start ticking off checklist to, to get to a certain kind of certification or something like that, and to not just accept that this is the way we're going to do it because this is the way it's done. You know, I think that there's a lot of that in, in farming in general, but in agriculture as well. People say things enough times and they just become fact. And I'm not interested in facts. <laughs> well, I want to pivot because we could talk all day about the farm, but I have five beautiful bottles of wine sitting in front of me and I've only tried two. So That's that means that we need to start pouring some wine. Talking about the farm was really, truly beautiful. It was so eloquently put and said and translated. But we're going to take a quick break and we're going to see how all of this farming translates to the wines. Hey, wine collectors. I've got a question for you. What do wine and spirits bottles, functional wood art and storage all have in common? Two words, Oregon Winewood. They're a local Oregon company bringing your vision for unique and personalized storage to life for over 60 years. If you've ever been to our office here in McMinnville, Oregon, you'll have seen his wine racks and custom desks spread throughout our entire space. So give his portfolio a swirl and check out OregonWineWood.net. Cheers, y'all. Our glasses are all full now. We've definitely had some different wines that are sitting here on the table. And with everything you've done in the vineyard and the transitions that you've made with that, it had to have affected the wine somehow. Yeah, absolutely. It it really didn't take all that much time. But at that three-year point that I was talking about early earlier, we began to see some really interesting transitions in the, in the vineyard itself. So a series of, of actual like, like genetic physiological mutations in the vine. So like our Pinot Noir in one vintage turned entirely a different color. So it's now blue. It looks like Nebbiolo. Wow. It doesn't look like Pinot Noir. It has skins that are not the little thin, delicate skins of Pinot Noir. They're more like Cab or Syrah. They're these like thick, kind of banana peely, crunchy skins. In our Pinot Gris site, we get multicolored berries in the clusters. So not just the light purple color that you see in Pinot Gris. And even to the extent where we see individual berries that look like they've had a line drawn right down the middle of them, where one side of the grape is the light purple color of Pinot Gris. And then just like you shot a laser down the middle of the berry on the other side, it looks like Chardonnay or Pinot Blanc. It's utterly bizarre. That's um, crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. And and along with that, the wines completely began to transform to a place where they where they became, you know, coming back to that original idea of how do we really find terroir, you know, in in, in a way that's actually meaningful and not just sort of market speak. And what we began to see is that is that the wines became untethered from what you might expect for for Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, you know, not just for wines from the Willamette Valley or from Oregon, but also just varietally. There there are some things that are happening in these wines that that are not necessarily, I mean, I think they're delicious and they're they're incredibly expressive, but they're not necessarily appropriate. So I'm actually afraid to ask because I, I know you two well enough, but go ahead and take it. I want to hear it. Inappropriate's a great word to kick it off to Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> no, no kidding. And take you on far making inappropriate wines <laughs> since 
2008. That could be your next tagline. Yeah. Or is it the tagline? It, it might be the new one. It might be the new tagline. We keep adding them on. The usually they have more F words in them, but uh, that's that which is also inappropriate. So that, that works out well. There we go. I, I think part of what the work of truly finding the wines, not making them, but finding them in the vineyard. If you take the farming vision that is based on person, on observation, on being present in the sight of, of constantly walking through and taking the time, that farming vision has to come into the wines as well. And I think one of the, the first thing, if you talk to probably hopefully anyone who makes wine, your most critical decision is picking. Once you pick, you can't put it back on the vine. Like that's right. That's the cutoff. You're, you're done with that part. And now it moves into the winery from, from the vineyard or from the farm. And up until that point, there's still a lot of decisions to be made and there's a lot of observation to be done. And one of the things that we've seen observable and walking through the vineyard and being present is that, you know, Stephen talks about the physiological changes that are evident, the growing habits of the vines. They're actually very, very different. And a great example of this is we've all been sitting here drinking three different Pinot Gris from six acres, which is not really what Pinot Gris is meant for. Usually, or Grigio is meant to put it all into one thing, make one white wine that's delicious and quaffable and serves a certain purpose. And uh, you can sit on your porch and pound that all day long on a hot summer day and it's delicious. That's, that's the point of Pinot Gris or Grigio generally. And what we find is that because of the intention paid to the farming, that it is up to us to find other expressions of it. And so going into the vineyard, paying attention to how we sample things so that each section of the vineyard of the Pinot Gris vineyard is sampled the same way that we think about Pinot Noir. We do it by block. We do it by selection. We do it by seeing swales and dips and where the soil is different. And we give the same attention to this variety that we give to the one that we're all you know so excited about in Oregon and that we built our back on with Pinot Noir. If you treat Pinot Gris in the same way, you will find life in it that is different. And that is, that's what we're chasing, absolutely chasing, is connecting the wines to the vision of the farm. And that's really how we do it. Had you not told me that this was Pinot Gris, I, I would have never guessed it because, right. I mean, the color that you have pulled through with, you know, the rosés or however, you know, you want to translate that, it's just it's different. It, there's depth to it. There's character to it. Something like when you are talking Pinot Noir, you have those layers of the terroir where Pinot Gris typically is fairly light and acidic and a little bit fluffy sometimes. And this is not that. This is not that. Yeah. At all. No, not at all. And, and even our, even our white wine that we make from Pinot Gris has more articulation. It has more translation and it really, really speaks to the place that, that Antiquum Farm is through the farming, through the, the microclimate that we're in. And that's the whole goal of it. And so when we have a white wine and then we have a, a wine that looks like rosé or rosa pinot gris, and then we have this wine that's in our glass now called allium that is almost orange in color, those are specific parts of the vineyard where we found different kinds of ripening and different sorts of flavor profiles that we learned by walking through and being there. And instead of trying to shove it all into a box went, well, if we know how to make wine, which hopefully I still know how to make wine. That's the goal. And with the, the things that I've taught, uh, or excuse me, that I've learned from my mentors and the things that I've observed through being the best that I can be at this thing, that we can translate that skill into really seeing what can come out of the vineyard 
And that's using different processes in the winery to articulate that terroir that we see present by visual cues, by chemistry, and all of the other honky bullshit <laughs> that's super technical <laughs> that no one really cares about, except for other winemakers. So, so yeah, so yeah, we get a, we get a Pinot Gris that has texture, that has body, that has intensity, that's actually made in the same way that Pinot Gris was made in in or Grigio was made in Italy, or Gris was made in in Alsace in France uh, a long time ago, because you you they, you didn't have to ha- use have all of the equipment to destem to do temperature control. And so you were simply just taking the fruit that you were given and you would chuck it all into a vat and you would come out with a wine that hundreds of years ago was probably more like this wine. It had more texture, it had color to it from a grape variety that we now just make into white wine and call it a day. There's, there's much more that's interesting out there. There's so much going on out there with with you two. We could go for hours with all of this and I know that, but I want to make sure that we highlight the other things that you're doing, the things that caught my attention, the tasting room, you walk into it. I felt like I was in beauty and the beast. I mean, it honestly felt that Belle should have been coming around the corner and with her basket of goodies. And he did come around the corner. Be- beauty. <laughs> he did, beauty. but he didn't have his boots on. So maybe he I'm wasn't maybe near as pretty. I'm definitely the beast. <laughs> well, I did see you first. So maybe That's true. You're, the, you're the beauty. He's Thank the you. beast. Let's I don't know how you put it. So let's remember what happens to beast in the end. But I still see hints of Stephen in his original profession with the gardening because the the grounds are beautiful around. It's a French chateau. That's pretty much what it's styled after, correct? Yeah. So everything on the property, and it's kind of the same overarching philosophy of, of like, we want our hands to be in everything and for everything on on our property to to show the things that we care about and that we think are important. And, and being self-sufficient is, is one of those things. In the same way that the vineyard, by creating a place that is not a vineyard, it's a working farm, by having, that, having the vineyard become more diverse, it becomes more expressive and stronger and more resilient, I also see that for people. So I cannot stand specialization. I think that it is a death nail for for creativity and expression in human beings. And so I definitely specialize in nothing. So I take a lot of pride in that. On our property, there is, at this point, there is next to nothing standing on that place that, that we have not built ourselves. So the tasting room that, that you visited was originally our home before we started having babies. And Nikki and my father and I built that together. And so, and when I say we built it, I don't mean we hired a contractor and came. I mean we swung the hammers. And all of the material for the for the structure is milled off of the property. So every single board in that place has been planed and straight edged and everything on the property by ourselves. And and so every everything that we make, we try to have that same level of intimacy. The tables in the place are off of the property. We built them ourselves. So all of it, you know, we we want to see our heart in every square inch of that place. And I think that in the end, when you add it all together, you know, in, in, in almost like a design sense, you get that there's a through line of spirit there that I, that I think resonates. Well, I think to go into the next thing, you have this charcuterie program that I know is brand new. It was a, it was a Christmas present, if I understood right, 
when I was there, you were still doing, you served me things that you had created, things that came off the land. And I was blown away by, it wasn't just salami and prosciutto and manchego cheese or whatever. It was something actually created on the property. And that is something to take pride in and to highlight because it is extremely unique as far as what is going on with probably anything else in the world. There's, there's really a long-term goal. I mean, and this goes with the self-sustaining mechanism of the farm itself is that it should be a self-sustaining mechanism in terms of, as a business, having a hospitality program that we want to have food grown next to the grapes that we also grow and turn into wine that when people come to Antiquum Farm, it is as much essentially terroir as we can put into the entire thing. Because if we're going to say that that vines and grapes have an articulation of place and that you can see that, well, isn't that also true for apples? And isn't also true for the pigs that we raise that then become charcuterie? Isn't it true for the quail and for the geese and, and everything? Isn't it true for the timber that we use to build the buildings? I mean, there's there's an entire connectivity of that that is absolutely critical to showing how individualistic anyone can make the place that they love so that, you know, the outgrowth of this stuff is really that other people can see what's going on and hopefully find, I think, the same and now I'm speaking as, as the outsider to the family, but can find the same love that I get to see for Stephen and his family with this place. Because if it wasn't for that, you don't get everything else. You would get more fiscal responsibility and more, more drive for profitability and more things that in the short term have the appearance of success that at Antiquum Farm are not the point. The, the point is something much, much bigger. And I think the more that we can attract other people into like-minded vision, that they can come and see what's going on at Antiquum and take it to their place you know, we don't want to see anything else be like Antiquum Farm, but someone else should go back to their place and create something that is unique and individual and that they love. And if we can be a, a bastion of that and a, and a showcase of it, as Stephen and, and Nikki have been at this for 25 years, that's an amazing thing for us to do. And so we welcome people, you know, obviously from the public, from the trade, anyone who finds the story fascinating and wants to come see what's going on. Uh, we love having people at the farm and, and connecting something that we love with other people is it's such a joy. Yeah. I get, I get a lot of people that, you know, other growers, other winemakers that, you know, will contact us all the time and say, okay, well, we want, we want to know, like, how do we do this at our vineyard? And my response is always, you can't. And, and I don't mean that from, from a standpoint of, of that they can't execute a vision. You can't because what we're doing has been, has been put together over 25 years for a specific place. What they absolutely can do is ask themselves those broader questions and create their own thing that fits their property and fits who they are. Like that is the entire point of, of this of this system, for lack of a better word, is is that it's about finding the things that you care about, that you hold dear, and then tailoring them to the place that you live so that your wines or your broccoli that you grow are, are an absolute truthful expression of yourself and your place and, and then the time that you're there. 
I don't think I want to ask any more questions about that because that was so beautifully put and you kind of found a nice finality point to it because then I can pivot and ask you and we can talk about these beautiful labels and the fact that I did not open the bottle correctly when you saw me do it on Wednesday and the fact that I cut the ribbon, actually I pulled the ribbon off and that was a big sin, I believe. Yes. And struggled with it. So you have a brand new label that we world debuted today. So thank you for letting us do that, by the way. So let's do a quick snippet on these labels and the fact that this ribbon thing that you do on the top was potentially a a marriage blocker a little (laughs) bit. And we'll wrap up with everything and have another glass of wine. Yeah, so the the labels are designed just right down the street. Uh, Andrea LaRue and Nectar Graphics here in McMinnville. She does amazing labels. She does amazing work, and she assisted us in the design of of all of these. And we just, I mean, we couldn't be more thrilled with with their work. And the ribbon treatment on the top. So being a podcast, each one of these bottles has a has a little ribbon looped over the top of the cork and then sort of coming down the bottle underneath a neck label. And, you know, initially we had a cap designed for these bottles and it just, and it was a beautiful cap. It looked great, but I just, I want, I wanted these wines to feel like you were opening a gift. And I wanted something that also shows that like at Antiquum Farm, like not only do we not ever cut corners, but we will manufacture additional corners just for the joy of cornering. And so the first year that we did the ribbons, we, 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 our first year of production, we made a hundred cases of wine. So my wife and I did all of them by hand and we were darn near divorced by the time we finished that hundred cases. So the next year I was going to stop doing it, but the, the very few retail accounts that we had all said, no, you absolutely have to keep doing it because people love it and it's beautiful. And so I told the kids what I thought it cost to do it per bottle and they agreed to do it. And at that time, then we were 225 cases and they mutinied at about case 25 and said they wouldn't do it. And I said, commitment's a commitment. You got to finish it. So now they hate me. So, but now what we found is, is this dovetails really nicely into sort of a labor lag that happens on our farm after harvest. And so it is, it's now something that we keep going also because it helps us keep our, our people employed year round and, and doing meaningful work on the farm. But it, it, it is a significant commitment to do it, but we, we love it. So the proper procedure, just so Ah, you know, is to slide the ribbon off to the side and then take the cork out. Yes. Yes. Don't break the ribbon. Except when you're at bottle two or three and you just want to get into it and then then all bets are off. That's fair. I mean, we may end up being at that point. Other than you already took all the corks out of everything. So, you know, we don't have to get to that bottle five. It's already been done for us. Thanks, Andrew. You're welcome. Yes. I want everybody to know where you're at. You don't have standard hours. You're not open eight to five, you know, Monday through Sunday. So we, we are, we take appointments Thursday through Sundays when we are not in COVID restrictions. So Antiquum Farm is in Lane County outside of Junction City. And currently Lane County is an extreme risk. And while we could do tastings outside under a tent with heaters, we've our, our hospitality program is built on people coming into an Antiquum Farm and having an experience of being home. 
and home is not sitting outside fighting the weather for a while and tasting wines. That's not what we want for people, and we want we want a deeper relationship. And so we've just opted to stay closed for the, the meantime. So eventually when we open again, we do things by appointment, Thursdays through Sundays. You make reservations through our through talk.com, T-O-C-K, or find that on our new website, which is going plug, plug. to be, be hopefully up and running by the middle of next week if we can figure out why banner images don't work on tablets. So if anyone knows why banner images don't work on tablets and can contact the back office administration people of our web platform, that'd be awesome. Yeah, so we're, we're excited and, and it's great. So the new website goes up and it's completely it's a completely redone from what we have now. Not only easier for all of the e-commerce, which has exploded over, over the period of COVID over the past year, but also to more deeply translate what this place has been. So all the things that we've talked about today are, are really present in, in, on the website and for people to really go through and see what it is and actually obviously see photographs, which uh, are, are great. There's pictures of puppies. That's there's very, lots of puppies very, and they're very, fluffy. Yeah, it's very fluffy. Puppies are important. But also the use of that kind of tool really is to draw people into the story. And I think more more that they... Of course, we want people to come find our wines, but I think overall, we just want people to, to find happiness. And if that's with us, that's great. And one thing I will highly encourage everybody to do is to find these two on Instagram because Andrew talks to the pigs. Stephen probably does too. And I just haven't found that video yet. But if you truly want to see the inner workings of this farm, the pigs, the dogs, the geese, the chickens, sheep, I don't know what else I'm missing. There's a little bit of everything over there. You really, truly need to find them on Instagram. And from there, you will fall in love with both of these two characters, but also what they're doing, because it is truly amazing. So thank you, guys, gentlemen. I don't know if we use that term loosely or not. We didn't get any (laughs) F-bombs today. So, you know, nice work all the way around. Don't tip me. It's never too late. So you know very well that I will be back. And I hope, you know, hope that everybody seeks you out and finds you because you truly are a gem. Thanks, Heidi. It's great to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in today. And don't forget to follow Wine Crush Podcast on social media and your favorite podcasting platform. And make sure to review and subscribe to the show, as well as joining the newsletter to be notified on all Wine Crush happenings on winecrushpodcast.com. Cheers, y'all. And remember, life is short. Drink the wine. We want to give a special thanks to our partners of Wine Crush Podcast, sponsored by Country Financial, produced and managed by the Daydream Agency, audio engineered by Silent Outburst Productions, our culinary partner, Pure Vita Casina, and to all our wonderful listeners in the Oregon wine country and around the world. If you've listened this far and you give a damn, head to winecrushpodcast.com to learn more. Cheers and drink the wine. Drink the wine.